What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Okay, well, welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out to Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. Very glad to have you tonight. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors. We're very much looking forward to tonight's talks on critical theory and critical race theory. Before we begin, I just wanted to take a moment to welcome those of you who are visiting our congregation. By the looks of it, there are plenty of visitors here tonight, for which I am very thankful. So if you are new or visiting, Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church from the Reformed tradition. Uh, that means we come from the English Puritan and Scottish Covenanter tradition of the Reformation period. Uh, we're an evangelical church, which means we believe in the inspiration of Scripture and that we ought to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the whole world, which is part of the reason that, that we are here tonight. Uh, so again, thank you so much for coming. We're very glad to have you. If you are uh, unfamiliar with our building layouts, I just wanted to let you know that we do have restrooms out the door to the left. There's both men's and women's restrooms that direction. We also have one restroom this way down this hallway, and of course we have restrooms downstairs as well. So if at any point you need to, uh, to sneak out during the lectures, that is totally fine and absolutely understandable. I did want to mention a little bit about our schedule tonight. You've probably seen the, uh, the notes that are available to you in the back if you didn't get a set of notes. I'm sure there will be somebody who could help you find a set of notes. I'll be uh, giving a lot of information tonight, some of which you might want to write down, and uh, you can use your note guide to take notes. Also, tonight there's going to be two lectures. And just a little bit about the outline. In the first lecture, I'm going to be presenting a positive construction of what Christians believe about anthropology, which is the overarching category of what it means to be human. So before we take on the task of critiquing critical theory and critical race theory, we're first of all going to take a few moments to set out what it is that Christians actually believe about humankind, who we are, what we are. What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? So the first lecture I'm going to give is, will be somewhat theological. I'll be using some theological terms as well as a number of biblical references. So you do have a Bible in front of you if you need to consult the scriptures as we work through these matters. Uh, after the first lecture, we're going to take a break, and we're going to go downstairs for some quick coffee and some refreshments. We have some cake. That'll give you an opportunity to get up and stretch your legs, because going through two lectures in one night is a bit of a, a tall order, so I understand you might want to stretch your legs halfway through. So we're going to take that break. Uh, we'll go downstairs. You can follow somebody who's a member here at Gospel Fellowship. You can find the gymnasium where we have coffee and cake set out. 
And we'll quickly scarf that down, and we'll come right back up here for the second lecture, and that will be the one where I will be offering an argument against uh, the prevalence of critical theory and critical race theory in our schools, churches, and in our universities. So I hope you'll find that lecture to be interesting as well. But for tonight, let's first of all sing a hymn together. I'd invite you to grab your hymnal and turn with me to number 521. And when you find 521, let's go ahead and sing together, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. Remain standing for the reading of God's Word at Gospel Fellowship PCA. We regard God's Word as infallible, inerrant, and inspired, the very Word of the great and living God, not only to His people, but to the world as well. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do come into your house tonight acknowledging that we live in a difficult age and a controversial time. Lord, we are not the first generation of Christians that have existed within controversy, Lord, and it is our responsibility and duty as Bible-believing Christians to stand up and to speak a word of truth in a generation that denies your authority. And so, Father, tonight I pray that you would help me, the speaker, to present things that are clear and biblical and right and true according to your word. And Father, I do pray that all that we teach here at this church from this pulpit would be edifying and biblical to the congregation. Lord, also I pray for the audience tonight that you would grant us ears to hear, that we might truly hear what you have to say to us through the Holy Scriptures, and that we would be blessed because we've gathered tonight, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Once you imagine that you're in a classroom filled with students, and the teacher invites all the students in the classroom to step up and to step out into an open space, at which time the teacher asks all of the students of a certain color or race to take a step forward. And then after that, the same teacher asks all the students of a different color to take a step back. Imagine then that having separated the students in this way, she then asks that certain students that have parents that are married take a step forward and certain students that have parents that are not married take a step back. And then the teacher asks if your parents consist of a mother and a father, take a step forward, and if they consist of two mommies or two daddies, take a step back. And this procedure goes on some ways until finally the teacher says, if you belong to this religion, take a step forward, and this religion, a step back. And here you are now, all the students in the class, you're lined up. You've divided yourself in every superficial way that people can be divided. And then imagine that the teacher tells you that those who are at the very front of the line consist of those who are the most privileged in society, and those who are in the middle are somewhat marginally privileged, and those at the very tail end of the line, these are the most oppressed. Imagine what you would think of your classmates after that little lecture took place. Imagine how you would feel if you were the front student, the one who's considered the most privileged by this system. Imagine how you would feel if you were told that to be included amongst the most privileged, you are therefore responsible for some of the suffering of those who are less privileged or more oppressed on that scale. Imagine that you're that student who ranked as the most privileged, or imagine that you're on the bus home from school that day, and you're the student who was considered to be the last of all. How would you feel? Well, this situation is not merely a theoretical. This is something that has actually happened in a third grade classroom in Cupertino, California, and it's a procedure that will continue to take place in schools and in workplaces throughout this nation as we work through this new concept of intersectionality 
to find out which of us in society rank among the privileged and which rank amongst the oppressed. That's why we're here tonight. We want to speak a better word. The gospel of Jesus Christ has something better to say than the modern critical theory and critical race theory, and we'll talk about those especially in lecture two. There is a difference, by the way, between critical theory and critical race theory. As some people asked why this lecture series was titled uh, Critical Theory rather than Critical Race Theory. Well, technically, critical theory is an overarching umbrella concept of which critical race theory is only one part, and we're going to deal with that in the second lecture. And I will be offering to you tonight a polemical argument, which means, from a logical perspective, I will be arguing against those things as being helpful or necessary in our society. In other words, I will be attacking critical theory from a different perspective. The perspective that I'd like to present to you tonight is what I believe is the biblical Christian perspective on anthropology. Now let's define a few terms tonight, and we're not going to be afraid to define terms because in some sense that's what this controversy is about, is terms and labels. So anthropology is the study of humankind, what it means to be human. And by the way, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a Christian human? These things are not things that we need to devise the answers for or invent new answers to these questions because we've inherited a strong theological tradition. We've inherited the teachings of Scripture passed down from generation to generation that have already worked hard on these concepts related to anthropology. By the way, anthropology comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means study of man. So by the way, what does the Scripture teach us about ourselves fundamentally? Well, tonight in this lecture, I'm going to give you uh, seven or so things that I believe the Bible speaks very clearly, and then we'll work on some applications to that. Uh, but let's start with this. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says this about our nature. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. So if there's anything else that seems to be obvious to us as Bible-believing Christians, it's that we are created beings. We've been made by a God infinitely greater than ourselves. And not only that, but look at the imagery here, and I believe it's actually more than just mere imagery here that these things are literal, but it says that God formed the man of the dust of the ground, and so God, as it were, takes the very dust of the earth. But we're not merely dust. What does he do to this particular dust. He breathes life into the nostrils of man, and so we became living beings. Now think about this for just a moment. The dust is still important, because even though we're obviously greater than balls of dust, uh, we're not some cosmological accidents by the forces of evolution or something like that, uh, but nevertheless, we are finite. We're mortal. We're going to die one day. And so we still are, in a sense, of the dust, because the scripture says, from dust you came, into dust you will return. We're mortal. We're finite. We're small. We're limited compared to God. But look at this. It's not mere dust only, because God breathed life into us. And so we have this life. There's something beautiful about us. There's something special about us, something unique. And we carry this uniqueness, even to this day, in the terms that we use to describe ourselves. So for instance, Adam's name, Adam, is actually very closely related to the Hebrew word Adamah, which means dust. And that has made its way into the Latin from whence we get the word human being. Human 
comes from the Latin humus, which you probably already know means dirt. If you've been to Lowe's and you've picked up a bag of peat humus lately, you already know that term. And even the uh, German word, earthling, comes from the same word, earth. So in all of these languages, we see this concept that we are related to the earth from which God made us. But notice, too, in the creation story that there's something entirely different about human beings that is distinct from all of the other creatures that God has made. You know what it is, right? Because you know your Bibles. You know, don't you, that human beings are the only of all of God's creatures to ever be said to be made how in what? in the image of God from Scripture, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. None of the other creatures, nothing else God has made, not the Galapagos Islands, not the Milky Way galaxy, not the Andromeda galaxy, as beautiful as these things are, not even the angels, Gabriel and Michael, are said to be made in the image of God. And so there's a uniqueness and something special about being a human being in relationship to the rest of the creation that God has called into order. What is our purpose? Well, as Presbyterians, we believe uh, that this is best summarized in the shorter catechism question number one, what is the chief end of man? And the answer that we teach our children to give here at this church and others like us is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why you exist. You were made You were created to glorify God, and not just to glorify him, but to enjoy him forever. This is good. It's good to be created. Now, the image of God has been debated amongst theologians for many, many centuries. Here's how we've best refined our definition of the image of God. I'm going to quote again from the catechetical materials of the Westminster divines. I say this, how did God create man? Answer, After God had made all the other creatures, he created man, male and female, notice the two genders, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground, we've already mentioned that, and the woman of the rib of the man, right, endued them with a living, reasonable, and immortal soul. That's part of that God breath, that breathing life into man that we just mentioned a moment ago. Immortal souls, and made them after his own image and knowledge righteousness and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it in dominion over the creatures yet subject to the fall. So every single one of us in this room has been made in the image of God. If you remember the Toy Story movie, you remember the Buzz Lightyear toy. He had indelibly written in permanent marker on his foot the name of his owner, who was the owner of Buzz Lightyear. Do you remember this? Andy. And throughout the, the adventures of the, of the story, In a Toy Story, you will sometimes see a glimpse of the name Andy written on Buzz Lightyear's foot. And there's something akin to that in the fact that we were made in the image of God. No matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what anyone says about you or does to you, yet you still will always have that image of God imprinted upon your very soul. So with that as an introduction, let's then mention seven things that the Bible is crystal clear about related to our own human nature. Number one, this is found in your notes if you're following along. All of humanity is created in the image of God. Now I stress the word all of humanity because the last thing that I would want to happen tonight is somebody walks out this door thinking that there are various kinds of human beings in which some of them have the image of God and others do not. No. 
all humanity is created in the image of God. And this is important for us as Christians because this is going to work its way out into our understanding of ethics and morality, which is why we Christians sometimes have different views that contrast the moral opinions of the world, right? Because they're not operating under that fundamental assumption. We are. And so in terms of Christian ethical categories, uh, we include both genders, male and female. By the way, the Bible's specific that male and female were created in the image of God, so that eliminates chauvinism or extreme forms of feminism, right? And not only both genders, but all colors, various colors of skin intonation, uh, whether we are abled or disabled, whether we speak this language or that. In other words, from womb to the tomb, there are social implications for our doctrine of the image of God or the imago Dei. This is going to impact the way that we as believers think about abortion. That's why we're going to differ from unbelievers on this topic. Differ stridently, perhaps. Serious and significant differences in our understanding of abortion because of our doctrine of the imago Dei. Uh, we may also look at immigration differently. We may look at poverty differently. We may look at capital punishment or just war or euthanasia. All these things are complex issues. I don't mean to reduce them to a point of simplification, but the Christian ethical and moral perspective must be informed at every step by our doctrine of the imago Dei, the image of God. Uh, let me quote to you from one of my own professors, John Frame, from Reformed Theological Seminary. He says this, quote, the image of God belongs to every child of Adam, every human being. The Bible will not permit us to divide the human race into some who bear God's image and some who do not. The image of God belongs to all races, all nationalities. It belongs to the rich and to the poor, to male and to female, bond and free. It belongs to those who are disabled, even those so disabled that they cannot care for themselves. And then Frame adds this, and it belongs to the unborn and to those near death. So this is our fundamental building ground upon which we will construct our anthropology. Number two, all of humanity alike was affected by the fall. The image of God, however, was not utterly lost. Now there are actually two points in there, and I need to uh, split them up for just a moment here. First of all, let me stress that all of humanity alike was affected by the fall. You know, of course, that although God created the world in the space of six days and he rested on the seventh and he placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden, you know that in just the third chapter of the Bible, things go horribly wrong, right? Because the tempter, the serpent, the devil comes into the garden. He tempts them. He tricks them manipulates and connives them, and before the end of the chapter, we have a fallen human race. In our tradition, in the Reformed theological tradition, we describe this doctrine as unto total depravity. In other words, the word total in our depravity includes every single human being, all of us. We all have now fallen into sin. Adam, our foreparent, fell into sin, but so have we. Right? We've inherited his sin through uh, original sin. We now are prone, and let's not, let's not mince terms here. We don't, we don't just call them oopsies or mistakes or uh, misjudgments. We, we label our actions now because of the false sin. We're going to talk about sin tonight. We have to. 
So you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, and we're not going to beat around the bush about that, and we're going to call people to repentance. And the doctrine of total depravity not only means that every one of us in the room have fallen into sin, but that that depravity is pervasive throughout the whole of our nature. And here's what I mean by that. The sinful nature now affects the way that we think in the mind. We call that the noetic effects of the fall. The sinful nature now affects our will. We call that the volitional effects of the fall. The sinful nature has affected our affections, which is how we feel. We might, we might call them our emotions. It even affects the body to the point that we get diseased, fall weak, and eventually we will die. Of course, God had warned Adam that when you sin, you shall die, and so therefore we all die. Now, the sins that we're going to speak about tonight in particular related to prejudice and racism, these are all, of course, re uh, related to the fall. The reason why prejudices and racism, whatever other isms we can describe, the reason why these things is, exist is because of the fall, because we are fallen creatures. And therefore, all of us are going to be prone towards not only a hatred and a despising of God if we're left in our unregenerate condition, but we're also going to have a weariness, uh, an estrangement from, perhaps a xenophobia from our fellow human beings. This is an inborn tendency now towards selfishness, pride, covetousness, hatred, violence, and before we even get through Genesis chapter 4, we already have multiple instances of severe violence taking place, and we're only four chapters into the Bible. Because what happens with Cain and Abel? Well, you know that Cain kills his brother Abel. He slays him in the field. And before the fourth chapter of Genesis is over, Lamech says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, that he will carry out revenge multiple times over on his enemies. And so it's no wonder to us Christians we're not shocked when we find in our hearts things that we need to repent of, we always start with ourselves first because we have to repent of our sin first, right? But then we're also not surprised when we see our culture go astray, when our leadership go astray, when we see terrible images of violence and other instances of that depravity taking place on our television sets. We are the least surprised people on planet Earth when people disappoint us because we know the sinful nature. We have it ourselves. So all humanity alike was affected by the fall. But notice this, this is the second part of my big point number two. The image of God, however, was not lost at the fall. Now this is somewhat miraculous and an obvious evidence of God's preserving grace. You would have thought that a fall into sin so cataclysmic as the fall of Genesis chapter 3 would have removed the image of God from us entirely, right? I would have thought that. But actually, when we look through the scriptures, we find that that is not so. Though we are fallen creatures, nevertheless, we still bear the image of God. This is amazing. And the reason I know that is because it specifically says that we still bear the image of God in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, and then again in 9, 6. Now, why is 9, 6 important? Because the flood has just happened. So the good news is the image of God... Uh, persisted through the fall, even though we're totally depraved in our fallen nature and we need to be born again, yet the image of God is not utterly lost, and it's not as though God wiped out the image of God in the flood either. In fact, we still see the image of God being referred to even in the New Testament days, Ephesians 4.24, James 3.9, and I tell you this, you still bear the image of God even though you have 
yourself sinned and transgressed the law of God. Number three, there is only one Redeemer of humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ, given as a Savior to all tribes and peoples and nations. So you say to yourself, well, how do, how do we get ourselves out of this fallen condition? Answer, Jesus. So if, if we're doing anything here tonight, we're, we're just preaching the gospel, right? That's what we're here for. We're here to hear the good news that there is a way out of our fallen condition and a way to have our penalty removed from us. And that comes through the gracious work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Now, hopefully we're not covering any new ground for many of you tonight. Hopefully you're saying to yourself, I already know these things. These are basic. I know that. I know these are basic. That's why we have to cover them first before we get into the later stuff related to our culture and our position today. But I should simply mention this as well. Not only is there only one Redeemer of humanity, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is the only Savior given to all the tribes and the peoples and the nations. That's why we began with Revelation chapter 7. What did Revelation 7 tell us when we opened up the scriptures at the beginning of this lecture? It told us the good news that Christ is a Savior to all peoples. All kinds of peoples, all colors of peoples, uh, all places of habitation throughout the whole earth. Christ is going to be a Savior. He is a victorious Savior who has come to redeem those whom the Father has sent him to redeem. And so if Christ is the only Savior, then what does that exclude? Well, it excludes the possibility that there are any other Saviors, for one. But I'm also in ex excluding the possibility that we can find our salvation through human politics. Now, I vote as frequently as you do, all right? I'm assuming most of us are voters here, and I don't mean to discourage you from being political in your activity, but Christians should know and understand that politics cannot be the final answer to humanity's woes. It can't be, because that is only Christ. And so even as we're called from time to time to raise up in political voice and things of this nature, please do not put your hope in the salvation of either your soul or the revival of this nation in the next election. It doesn't work that way. Only the gospel can bring healing to humanity. But not only that, but neither can any worldview training repair our sinful condition as well. And for that, we will have much to say in the second lecture. No marches no violence in the streets, none of these things has the potential or the power to bring the kind of unity to humanity as gospel preaching does. And so therefore, this puts us as the local church in an extremely important position in the world because we who are Bible-believing Christians in Bible-believing gospel preaching churches, that means that our message is absolutely critical to convey just as far and wide as we possibly can do it. Here's some scriptures from the word of God. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice here that Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, that we are to make disciples of all nations. That includes all kinds of various peoples. 
This is the commission that we saw fulfilled in Revelation chapter 7. And so here's the good news. Jesus gave us the task to bring the nations the gospel, and Revelation tells us it's going to happen. So we're already on the winning team. Do not despair. Do not, do, do not fear that the gospel is not going to be successful. It is going to be successful. We just read that from Revelation 7, verses 9 to 12. But notice this as well. And here we begin to speak of some issues related to race in terms of our humanity. Notice this from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, what it says about the unifying power of the cross of Christ. The unifying power of the cross of Christ. Quoting Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he may create in himself one new man in the place of the two, and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, in original context here, of course, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, is talking about making the two one. He's talking about the Jew and Gentile bifurcation, right? But in our context, we can also apply this in terms of our racial dialogue, and we can simply say this, that it is Jesus Christ himself who is our peace, who unites us together as Christians, irrespective of your class or your kind or your skin color. He is the one who is our peace. He is the one who makes one new body out of humanity. That is his church. And how has he done that? Well, he's done that by making peace, listen, reconciling us both to God through one body at the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do we Christians feel hostility to those who are different from us? Answer, no, that's been killed at the cross. And one of the great things, if you ever have a chance to do a, a missionary trip to different places in the world, and you'll experience this when you go, is you can go to any place on planet Earth, I promise you, and you can find a Christian church, uh, at least in those places where the church currently exists, and when you go there, the believers will embrace you and love you because we have something that is totally unique amongst humanity. We have this fraternity of the Holy Spirit that the world simply doesn't understand. It's no wonder the world is always trying to concoct other ways to bring about reconciliation. They haven't experienced the fraternity and the unity of the Holy Spirit as we have. I can only tell you from experience myself, I've, I've been to places in Africa, I've been to Thailand, I've been to the Ukraine, I've been to Scotland, El Salvador, Mexico, I've been to places all over the world. Every single time I find Christians who believe the Bible and love Jesus as I love Jesus, we find ourselves having an immediate bond of friendship and indeed even kinship because of who Christ is. The world has no analogy for this. You understand that, right? No wonder they live in such despair. My goodness. You see, the cross has a way of absolutely leveling us to total equality. Because in order to become a Christian, the first thing you have to do is bow the knee in repentance and trust in Christ. You have to acknowledge your sin. And let's not mess around with euphemisms like brokenness or whatever else uh, contemporary Christianity wants to call it. Our transgressions, our iniquity, our sin, our evil must be confessed. And then... He grants us his grace, forgiveness. 
and we have this experience of unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Number four, and this is key, and I cannot stress this enough tonight, the condition of the heart of a human being is viewed as far more important in Scripture than appearance. In fact, Scripture rarely mentions one's appearance at all. Notice that in your Bible when you're reading it through. Notice how infrequently the Scripture even discusses what somebody looks like, much less the color of their skin. If you think about skin for just a moment here, and we'll talk more about skin as the evening progresses, your skin is the most superficial thing about you. It is literally the least significant thing in knowing who you are. It is the least significant thing in knowing what your character is or what your experiences are. In some ways, we might even say a skin color, at least according to Scripture, is totally irrelevant. What does matter according to Scripture then if it's not skin color? Well, it's the heart, of course, and this is not brain surgery here. This is not rocket science. What the Bible stresses over and over again is not the superficial appearance of the man, but what's happened to this heart? The most important thing about you is whether or not you've been reconciled by grace through faith to the living Christ. That's what matters about you. Now, notice this. Let's run a drill here for just a moment. How often does the scripture mention at all, in any way, the physical appearance of any of the people in the Bible? Well, there's hundreds of people named in the Bible, right? And we could probably count on two hands, maybe, all those that are described physically. And those that are, they stand out immediately as counterexamples. So let's think about this. We got Esau. What do we know about Esau? He was a hairy man. Genesis 27, 11. That's one of my favorite Bible memory verses. Esau was a hairy man. So that's cool. <laughs> if you're in youth group, memorize that one. Why, is, why do we need to know that Esau was a hairy man? Well, because it fits into the narrative of the story. If we don't know that Esau is a hairy man, how else do we find out that Jacob has deceived him and stolen his blessing? The fact that he's a hairy man is only relevant in as much as it helps us to understand the story of how redemption unfolds, right? And so, of course, he's going to jump out as a counterexample because not very many people are described in the Bible. How about Saul? What do you know about Saul? He was taller. Why is this relevant? Why do we need to know that Saul was tall? Because Saul serves as a counterexample of what good leadership is right? He's taller than everybody else. Therefore, they think superficially he's going to make a good leader because he looks like he's going to be some kind of a tough guy. But when Goliath shows up, Saul's back there in the armor room letting little David try on his armor, right? And so his height actually serves as an irony in the story to point out the fact that he's a terrible leader and David is going to replace him as the promised king who's going to inherit the throne. Well, who else? Well, Esther was beautiful, wasn't she? We know that Esther was beautiful. In fact, Scripture says, and guys, uh, guard your hearts here a little bit, but the Scripture says, Esther 2.7, that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Okay? 
Nice frame, nice face. She was an attractive gal. Why do we need to know this according to the scriptures? Are we just giving arbitrary details here? No, we have to know that she's beautiful because how else does she win the beauty contest, which is important to the story of the book of Esther, right? Now here we go. Here's the big one. We don't have any description of Peter or Paul, as important as they are. How about we just, we just jump to the end here and go to Jesus? Is Jesus, I mean, not to be facetious here, kind of an important story, right? Kind of an important figure in the history of redemption. Do we have anything about the physical appearance of Jesus? Anything? Can you think through all the Gospels? Let's see, we got Matthew, we got Mark, we got Luke, we've got John. Can you think of even one place where even a vestige of physical description is given of Jesus? The only possibilities are there is a prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah 56, that mentions his beard being pulled, okay, but that has to do with his sufferings on our behalf, and there's a place in Revelation chapter 1 that describes his face as shining like the sun in full strength, but of course the book of Revelation is filled with powerful imagery, and if his face is shining in full strength, what John, the writer, is trying to convey is that he is ultimately glorious. So the answer to the question, unfortunately, is we have this much physical appearance about the single most important person who's ever lived. Your salvation is dependent on what Christ has done and who he is, but it is not contingent on what he physically looked like. In fact, Scripture says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. This is speaking of Saul. And then it gives the, the scripture gives us a principle here. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. Yes. 862 times the Bible tells us that the heart is what is important about you. The condition of your heart. Fifth, and this may surprise you to know, but we need to speak in biblical categories. We're not going to adopt the categories of the unbelieving world. Fifth, though the Bible speaks frequently in terms of kingdoms, tribes, and nations, it speaks minimally of races as such and never as defined merely by skin color alone. Whoa, that's huge. Okay, so we, we talk about the tribes, we talk about nations like Babylon and Assyria, but the Bible doesn't traffic in the language of races as defined by skin color. Does that come as a surprise to you? Maybe it shouldn't. Now, the word race does come up a few times, but never in regard to definitions of skin color classifications. The word race is used maybe a handful of times, often with reference to the covenant people of God as over against those who are outside of the covenant redeeming grace of the Lord. I can call to, uh, to mention here three such texts, Ezra 9.2, Acts 7.19, and Romans 9.5. One point, and this is 1 Peter 2.9, it speaks of a holy race as pertaining to believers. Christian believers are a different kind we might say. But as to how many races there are, we should be very careful to define these things as the Bible defines them and not adopt the definitions of the world. So listen to this. This is Acts 
20, uh, excuse me, 1726. This may be the most important text about race in Scripture. Acts 17:26, And he has made from one blood, some translations, from one man, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. So according to Scripture, we are all of one blood, you see. We're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, as C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia. So where do we get the idea that there are so many races and that these races are to be decided by skin color, the most superficial thing about you? Well, this, of course, we find in secular theory. Uh, One such secular writer is Charles Darwin. The title of his book in 1589, is on the origin of the species. But we only call it that because many people today are embarrassed of the full title. Do you know the full title? On the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Okay. So does the Bible ever mention skin color? It does. Very infrequently, of course. Very infrequently. David is said to have a ruddy complexion in 1 Samuel 16, 12. That essentially means he has a reddish complexion. He blushed easily. That's what the word ruddy means. Jeremiah 13, 23 mentions the impossibility of a self-conversion for the Ethiopian, but that is a metaphor, obviously, for the fact that we cannot convert ourselves to grace, but we need God's grace to do that work for us. There's two instances of skin color in the book Song of Solomon, and these two are important enough for me to mention. In Song of Solomon chapter 1, the beloved, this is the female in the story. You remember the book of Song of Solomon is a love story between the beloved and the lover, right? The beloved is the woman, the lover is the king. And the beloved, the female, she says in chapter 1 that we ought not to despise her because she is dark. Is that racial? Actually, it's not racial. What that has to do with is the fact that she was a field worker. She's described as being a shepherdess. She had to work for a living. Her skin is tanned deeply because her outdoor work requires it of her. She's saying, don't despise me because of my peasant status, not because of my race. Now, interestingly enough, in chapter 5, verse 10, the king, uh, who typologically is Solomon, Solomon perhaps as a type of Christ who loves his church, just as Solomon loves his bride here, Solomon is described as being radiant. If you have the new King James in your hand, it describes him as white. Why is that important? Is this a racial category? Answer, no. It's because he is the king. He works indoors. And Solomon lived in a time not only of peace, which means he didn't have to go onto the battlefield to run drills with the soldiers, but also of prosperity and abundance, meaning he didn't have to work in the fields. So their difference is not a racial distinction, but one of their employment, we might say their economic status. If you want to call that class, I suppose that's fine as well. But remember, typologically, the book of Song of Solomon functions to remind us as believers, that Christ has an incredible love for us. 
He loves us despite the fact that we're unworthy. He loves us despite the fact that we can't possibly match him status for status and rank for rank. He loves us in a condescending, gracious form of love. So even here, these very infrequent references to skin color actually speak a word of the gospel to us. Sixth, prejudices of various kinds are condemned in Scripture as heinous sins. Prejudices of various kinds are condemned in Scripture as heinous sins. Now, the term racism as such, of course, is not going to be found in Holy Scripture, but certainly the concept of prejudice is. And these kinds of prejudices, be they ethnic or racial or class-based or wealth-based, whatever they are, appear to be forbidden to us. We are not to judge others. We are not to be prejudiced against others. We are not to suppose things about the other because of such superficial things as their appearance. In fact, it's sin. And so let's be clear tonight. I want to be really clear. Whatever else you hear from me, hear this. Racism is a sin and a wicked sin, in fact. It exists. And it is malevolent. If you find it in your heart, repent of it. If you find it again, repent again. But maybe we should define racism, you think? Because I don't think we're talking about the same terms sometimes, the way I hear it used today. Here's my definition. Racism is the sin of exalting one's own ethnic or racial lineage as superior to others, or conversely, treating, condemning, or denigrating others as inferior because of their color, their heritage, or their lineage. So what, so what is racism? What am I trying to say here? It's either when you make yourself better because of who you are, where you came from, or what you look like, or when you treat others as inferior. It's a sin of the heart. It's a sin of prejudice. It's a sin of hatred, and it ought to be repented of. In critical theory, in critical race theory, in the second lecture, you're going to notice that the definition has changed, and you need to know what that definition is. It's very different from the one I just gave, which is why we find our sp ourselves speaking past each other quite a bit. So racism is a sin, no question about that. Don't hear anything else from this lecture. Racism is to be repented of. Number seven, justice is the standard of God and the goal of appropriately responding to sin with fair and right standards under the appropriate legal jurisdictions. I realize that's a mouthful, but the concept of justice is somewhat difficult to define. It's a standard of God. We know justice because God is just. What God says is just is just. Even if we disagree with God, it's God's standard that defines what justice is. But notice this. We live in a fallen world, right? We've covered this. The problem is that we cannot impose justice no matter how hard we try. We simply find ourselves chasing our tail. We cannot ensure that we will now or ever live in a completely just society because we're always going to live in a society filled with what? With sinners. And so the idea that we can fabricate the kind of society that's uh, fail-proof well, this is pie in the sky. This is utopianism. This is something that's perhaps out of a dream, but it's not possible in this life. And so we, we, we cannot 
assume that we can create the kind of society in which unjust things aren't going to take place. They will take place. And they'll be gravely disappointing to us when we see them. But nevertheless, as a society, we can aim towards justice, especially as we aim towards appropriating the righteous standards of God himself. So how do we try to emulate justice? Well, we do things like try to have just laws and fair trials and fitting punishments. In other words, we try to be as biblical as possible with application to the law. Now, these are my seven points, and I want to quickly make four applications, and then we're going to take a break here, and I promise I will be brief here. Uh, let me give four applications to this, and then we'll take our, our break. A, Christians should repent of all known dispositions towards racism or prejudice and ask God to reveal unknown prejudices. Okay, so when you see a prejudice in your heart, be it racism or any other ism, you ought to repent of that, trusting that God is willing and able to forgive you. And you also ought to pray that God would reveal to you the things that you cannot see. Part of the problem in being a sinner is that we have these things called blind spots, which, blind spots, which means that you have failures and transgressions that you are not even aware that you have. How do you become aware of them? Well, perhaps you read the scripture and it informs you. Perhaps you hear a biblical exposition of scripture in the form of a sermon. All the better. Uh, perhaps you have a Christian friend who highlights them for you. Perhaps the work of the conscience does its work. However else you find sin in your heart, repent of it and trust that God's grace will carry you through. B. Christians should ask God to fill our hearts with love. Not controversial here. This is Christianity 101. Uh, read John 13. Read 1 John, the entire letter. But I've noticed this as well. It seems to me that those who have the most hate in their hearts often seem to find hate everywhere else except for in themselves. Isn't that interesting? So pray for love. Ask God to help you love him and to love others. See, Christians should be thought leaders and action leaders in biblical justice, especially through the sharing of the gospel and acts of kindness. Now, when it comes to race and to racism, I want you to know uh, that our legacy as Christians historically is mixed. On the one hand, uh, we can say that Christians have had a hand in and a part of the slave trade industry, and for that, we ought to be most strenuously grieved in our hearts. Uh, if you read the brief biography of me in the back page of your notes, you'll notice that I've spent a lot of my time studying Jonathan Edwards, who was a slave owner. I regret that. I lament that. That grieves me that one of my theological heroes was a slave owner. I hate that about him. But at the same time, I want you to be glad that you also have inherited a heritage of many Christians who have fought against racism, been willing to give their lives to end slavery. William Wilberforce in England, Samuel Hopkins and Jonathan Edwards Jr., Edwards' son, were early abolitionists. Sojourner Truth, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Harriet Tubman, Elijah Lovejoy, Frederick Douglass, the Underground Railroad with 22 churches in its hidden network, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the days of the Nazis, Martin Luther King Jr., Alveda King, his niece standing for life these days. Do you know what all of those people have in common that I just named off for you? They were all Bible-believing 
evangelical Christians who love Jesus, and they did what they did because of their love for Christ. Therefore, we who are Christians should be thought and action leaders when it comes to these things. Finally, this. Christians should express particular concern and compassion towards suffering people all around the world. We ought to have eyes to see the suffering, and we ought to be willing to take action when it is found. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the biblical truth of scriptural anthropology. And Lord, we pray that you would even be preparing our hearts even now for the second lecture, that we would look with a rational and objective perspective upon the ideas of this day and this time, and that you would help us, Heavenly Father, to think biblically. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.